Hello and welcome to this focus episode of How We're Wired. My name is Eva Higginbotham. I have a PhD in neuroscience and I'm the producer of this series for the Bertarelli Foundation. These focus episodes have been a chance for us to dig into more fascinating stories of our brains, how they work and how scientists are studying them. In episode 14, we looked at the neuroscience of death and consciousness, including what near-death experiences might teach us about what it actually feels like to die. The thing is, for every person who can tell us about floating above their body or seeing light at the end of a tunnel, there will be many others who didn't survive their heart attack or stroke or brain injury to tell the tale. So we'll never hear their stories. And some of the time, this is because they fell into a coma, a very deep state of unconsciousness, and never woke up. The problem is, it can be really challenging for scientists and doctors to predict who is likely to wake up from a coma, and who isn't. And, as you can imagine, that's a decision that can have life or death consequences. So one is to go uh, close to your heart. Okay. Underneath your the left, left side, yeah. Breast. On the rib, on the rib cage, or just below. Well, it doesn't really matter. A little bit. Okay. So normally here, under here. Okay. Yeah. So we're left, right, and near the rib, but we don't actually go on top of the uh, no. heart. Okay. I've never had an ECG. That's me in Switzerland, having electrodes placed over my chest and getting hooked up to a machine for an electrocardiogram or ECG, which is a test that measures the heart's electrical activity. You can clip it. So that's like a little... Um, it's an electrode. Let's record ah. electrical activity. And the new one is on the opposite shoulder. And this is the ground. That's it. Okay. Now hooked up. <laughs> and that's Marzia Lucia a physicist turned neuroscientist at the University Hospital of Lausanne, who thinks they may have found a better way to predict who is likely to wake up from a coma and who isn't. So to start at the beginning then, what does it actually mean for someone to be in a coma? From a scientific point of view, what is yes. a coma? So it's a coma is a, is a state of a profound unconsciousness where the patients cannot be aroused and this is uh, usually irreversible for quite some time until the patients may wake up from that state. And typically can be caused by a cardiac arrest, a traumatic injury or, or a stroke. What is it about having a heart attack that can lead to coma? Because when I think heart attack from the movies, you don't always see them ending up in a coma yes. afterwards. It seems to be kind of a fast turnaround, yes. actually. Is that not the case? Yes, it really depends on whether the patient is uh, resuscitated, so through some specific procedure. So if you're lucky and you have a heart attack and somebody knows what to do right away, then normally there is a spontaneous return of circulation. And then what causes the coma is this temporary lack of oxygen that is provided to the brain. Nevertheless, the person can still survive and maintain in a coma through uh, some specific procedure and then treated in intensive care. So is it that the longer your brain goes without oxygen in that case, the more likely you are to be in a coma that is more long-lasting, for example? Yes. So basically all the patients that have a cardiac arrest 
and that are resuscitated are in a coma, and this is a specific type of coma, which is caused indeed by this temporary lack of oxygen. The longer is the lack of oxygen, the higher is the severity of the of the coma, although there is not such a, a strict relation. So you can stay without oxygen for longer time and still being able to recover from coma or the other way around. It's something that touch on millions of people every year. So cardiac arrest is one of the first causes of death worldwide. And this is great that more and more people are resuscitated from cardiac arrest, but this also means that the number of patients that remain in coma following cardiac arrest is increasing throughout the years. And so it wants, if someone's in a coma, but they've got all of the nutrients they need being provided to their body, they've got oxygen has been you know, replenished to their brain and other parts of their body, why can't they wake up on their own necessarily? Yes, this is because uh, the temporary lack of oxygen causes a um, lesion at the cellular level and uh, a cascade of detrimental processes at the level of uh, the cortical regions typically, but also sometimes at the level of more uh, profound regions in what is called the reticular ascending system, which is uh, the network that is responsible for uh, tuning the sleep-wake cycle. So it is because of widespread presence of lesions that are caused by this temporary lack of oxygen that uh, the person can stay for days or weeks uh, in this state of coma. So essentially, being stuck in a coma is having experienced brain damage to some extent or another. And this sleep-wake cycle, so when we say someone's in a deep sleep when they're in coma, is that literal? Well, there are some commonalities between the deep sleep and coma, but this is more at the behavioural level rather than at a mechanistic level, because the sleep is something that is physiological and it's not at all linked to, to lesions. The commonalities can be shared also at the level of the region that are responsible to maintain the consciousness level in the brain. Uh, so the reticular ascending system uh, can be lesioned in, in comatose patients. And uh, in deep sleep, some of the nuclei and those, or the cells in these reticular ascending systems deactivate. And this is what also produces some of the typical pattern that we observe in deep sleep. In our last episode, we explored different definitions of consciousness. And for Marzia, it really boils down to having a sense of awareness of your surrounding environment and of your own body. The concern is, when it comes to comatose patients, it could be that they are fully unconscious and unaware, or sometimes they could actually be conscious, just unable to move, speak or communicate in any way. So how do we currently make that distinction? So we don't uh, really. Uh, this is the big open question. So by definition, if you are in a coma, you're considered unconscious. And this is decided based on some clinical scales that are based on measuring the brainstem reflexes, measuring uh, motor response to some specific stimulation and some typical pattern of respiration. And sometimes some of these reflexes actually can be missed. So it's not something that is black and white. It's, it's a mostly an observation. This is, for example, is typical for the motor response to some noxious stimulation. It's so an like, observation. It's like hitting someone? Or? It's hitting someone oh. or it depends on the, on the guidelines. But for example, it's uh, squeezing the nipples or um, squeezing the fingers or um, punching them. Uh -huh. So the doctors can recognize whether there is an automatic response 
to this, mm. which is not conscious, or whether there is a, a reflection that tries to, to avoid the noxious stimulation. And this is something that is considered more coming from uh, a voluntary uh, type of reaction. Uh, so this is an observation, it's very difficult to quantify. But uh, it is more and more acknowledged now that these clinical scales are not sufficient to detect some residual level of consciousness in some of these patients. And this is even more true when we look at the coma patients that evolve into a more chronic phase. Sometimes these patients can remain in this unresponsive condition and change their condition from coma to what is called unresponsive wakefulness syndrome, where the wake sleep cycle is preserved, but remain unaware or we think they are unaware of their environment. And since the seminal work of um, Adrian Owen, and now more than 20 years ago, it is known that in some cases, through some specific common following protocols, where patients are asked to imagine performing some specific type of task in response to certain instruction, for example, playing tennis on wandering your own house. Uh, now it is known that even if, if clinically these patients seem unconscious, in fact, they can purposefully modulate their brain in response to some instructions. And therefore, uh, in this case, patients have some residual level of consciousness. So that sounds amazing. So that means you're sort of scanning someone's brain and who's in a coma. You don't know if they're conscious or not. And you ask them to think of something and you can see in their brain that they're thinking exactly. of that. Wow. That yes. must have been very, for the people doing that study, I mean, actually slightly horrifying almost to realize that people who are being... It is. Yeah. It is. And this is actually a condition that is shared by, you know, many thousands of patients worldwide that they fall into such a condition. And there is no real treatment uh, that is proposed at the moment. What is a long time to be in a coma? Yes, so there are typically three stages that are recognized after a coma. So there is a super acute phase, it's a few days or weeks. Then the acute phase is up to one month. And then after that, it's considered uh, chronic. And in a chronic state, you can remain, uh, as I said, responsive wakefulness syndrome or minimally conscious. And also in the minimally conscious, you can have several different stratification that help to label this type of patients and classify their severity. In Switzerland, we typically see mostly patients that are treated in the intensive care unit uh, during the uh, super acute and acute phase. There are very few cases of patients that remain in a chronic phase, and this is also true in other countries in Europe. And this is true um, because the policy of the um, hospitals at the moment, they try to avoid people ended up in such a condition where they remain chronic, where the families have to carry the burden of this type of conditions, which can be extremely difficult to manage from several points of view. So actually, if you haven't woken up by a month, the likelihood that you will be actually alive to wake up yes. goes down a lot. Yeah, it goes down a lot, yes. But typically for cardiac arrest, the decisions are taken very fast. Mm. After three days, if there are no positive signs that there is a chance of waking up, then the life-sustained treatment is stopped and then the patient will die naturally. In Switzerland, typically, uh, there are several markers that are considered before taking such decisions. 
and these are based on brainstem reflexes, on the response to motor stimulation, some uh, breathing pattern, and also the EEG is considered. There are some what are called malignant pattern. Some of them are very similar to what we see in uh, epileptic patients, which are typically also indicative of quite severe condition. If all these signs are negative or going the wrong direction, then there is a, a strong indication that the patients will not survive or not survive well. And then in such a case, this is discussed with the family, whether it is more convenient or more appropriate to stop the life-sustained therapy. Otherwise, the majority of these patients, and this is, this is the big challenge, remain in the so-called gray zone. Uh, so the vast majority, either they don't wake up or they have some of these signs that are promising uh, some of these tests that provide very negative results. And in these grade zone patients, and it's very difficult to take decisions, and the patients stay like that for, for days or weeks, and the families and the doctors just have to wait. So I would say that from a scientific standpoint, what we lack is a general understanding and objective quantitative marker that can really stratify consciousness levels independent on the theology, independent on the cause. And so what have you been doing to try and understand that uh, the, exactly. the quantification? <laughs> so uh, the background of this is that what we know is that even when we are unconscious, the brain reacts to uh, something that is unexpected in the environment. So, for example, typically, if we play a sequence of sounds that follow some regular pattern, and then all of a sudden we play something different, the brain uh, responds to such an unexpected stimulus by producing a pattern that we can recognize. What is not known is what is the difference uh, between the different state of unconsciousness. So there is not a general understanding of whether the brain responds to this, these patterns similarly across different uh, states of unconsciousness. And the idea comes from the fact that when you uh, are disconnected from the environment where you are unconscious, the brain needs to monitor what comes from the body, not just what comes from the environment. And it needs to respond to all the bodily signals that are necessary for survival. And this is typical of the heartbeat. So we're trying to see whether this interplay between how the human brain keeps monitoring the bodily signals and how it responds to the environment is crucial for responding to such a, a sudden and unexpected stimuli and characterize specifically the way the unconscious brain responds to something unexpected. So, Marzia and her team have devised a protocol which measures how the heartbeat responds to a surprise in the surrounding environment. It works in comatose patients, but also healthy participants in deep sleep, which they sometimes use as a model for coma. There are a few steps. First, they play sounds exactly in time with a patient's heartbeat, so it's synchronised. Then, they play sounds that are still regular beats, just not synchronised with the heartbeat. And finally, they then omit some of the sounds in the sequences. So, for example, instead of tick, 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 it's tick, 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 and see how the brain and the heartbeat respond. 
what we found is that when a sound is omitted unexpectedly, no matter whether you are unconscious because you are in a coma or whether you are unconscious because you're in a deep sleep, the heartbeat slows down and slows down only when the sound is omitted during a sequence where sounds were playing in synchrony with the heartbeat. It doesn't slow down when this unexpected omission is played within a regular sequence that has nothing to do with your own heartbeat. So it is as your heartbeat knows that something is changing in the environment mm. and this signal is extremely easy to measure. And so is that kind of like how if you were listening to music that had like a really strong beat and you were dancing, for example, and then the music uh, stopped or the rhythm changed and your body might be kind of trying you know you're kind of almost held in stasis of like oh I was it was time to stamp my foot at this point and I and I didn't so you have a little reaction is it a little bit like your heart is used to being in synchrony with this sound and then when you change the sound the heart is a bit like oh but that's not what we were doing <laughs> yes it's it's similar to, to this although um way we construct it is that the sounds follows the heartbeat of the participants, which is inherently irregular. Mm. But then when you suddenly omit it, the heartbeat tends to catch up with what he understands being a new regularity being played. Or at least this is one of the explanations. We don't know exactly why this is happening. But this is certainly happening in a very robust manner. We see this in all the subjects, in all the patients, and especially those that are more likely to wake up, actually. And so, so far, you've tried this protocol on patients in coma? Yes, we did try in patients in coma after cardiac arrest. And we see this pattern mostly after the first few hours after coma onset, most likely because at this point, the lesions that have been produced by this temporary lack of oxygen didn't have time to evolve and produce a large macroscopic damage in the brain. So we're really looking at quite a pure model of unconscious processing. We also see it in sleep, in healthy participants. What we are trying now is that we are reproducing the same protocol but now acquiring way more data. And if this is the case, then we would be able to propose this kind of marker also to stratify different level of disconnection from the environment and potentially also to stratify different level of consciousness in different etiologies of coma. The key thing is that Marzia is playing sounds in the patient's own heart rhythm back to them, which she played for me too. So I'm hooked up with three different uh, cables. I've got an electrode on my left collarbone, um, just below, same on the right, and then one sort of just on the bottom of my rib cage on the left hand side. Can you try to, to breathe? Deep breath. And very, very slow. The exhalation phase should be very, very long. Your heartbeat slows down at that phase. And then you should hear the sound also slowing down. So this is your heartbeat. This is the detection. So on the screen, what I can see is there are different, different lines that match up, I think, with the different signals, electrical signals, coming from the, where the different electrodes are placed on my body. And then another line that looks like what you'd see in a movie from a hospital bed, you know, showing the heartbeat. And when I speak, it goes faster. And when I breathe really slowly and try and relax a little bit, it goes slower. So the sound, the beeping that I hear, 
that is, is your heart. It's, it is as if your heartbeat was playing a sound. Okay. It's like I can follow the pattern, like beep, 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 and then it pauses. So what we're measuring here is my heartbeat yeah. playing sounds back to my ears that are in accordance with my heart. Yes. And I'm obviously conscious. I'm not asleep. So this is what we'd expect, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if I was uh, asleep, would we see the same pattern? Essentially, this integration between heartbeat and sound is something that you cannot be aware of. But your brain recognizes it, no matter whether you are awake or asleep or in a coma. It's the extent of this brain response or cardiac response to the violation of this pattern that change. Mm-hmm. So it's this interplay, the extent of this interplay that change as a function of consciousness. As the consciousness goes yeah. down. Yeah. I see. One of the main benefits of this technique is that doing an ECG measuring heart activity as we did in the lab is much easier than measuring brain activity directly and creates a much more consistent, less noisy, much easier to interpret signal. So what results has Marcia had so far on comatose patients? So we've seen so far, now we have about 70 recordings in the first days of coma. What we've seen so far at the group level, that especially in patients who will wake up at three months, this deceleration is present, which means that, first of all, that they can respond to sound, and this is something that we knew. They can monitor changes in the environment, but especially the brain can monitor changes in the environment in relation to their own heartbeat. So it means that the brain integrates information between the bodily signals coming from the heartbeat and the surrounding and use such a temporal cue to anticipate what's coming in the environment and signal something that is potentially dangerous for survival in such a fragile state where you cannot really respond or react. And have you found some patients who don't experience this deceleration or they don't, they're not responding to the sounds that you're playing? And does that then correlate with how likely they are to recover? Yes, we do. So this is at the group level. So we see that the significant deceleration is present in patients that will survive at three months, but not in those that do not survive, although there is a huge heterogeneity. So we are trying now to look at more single patient type of pattern that can really help us to disentangle not just survival, not survival, but more a fine-grained clinical severity of the coma. Ultimately, Marzia hopes that this work will help scientists, doctors families and loved ones during very difficult times trying to make very difficult decisions. I think it's it's very difficult for families to influence or to participate to the decision whether a patient is not likely to wake up or not based on the current evidence. I have some interest because unfortunately this can happen to all of us. It even happened to some friends of mine. I mean, uh, they had to decide at some point and... Uh, She's a scientist. I mean, I could uh, show her at least some of the literature. It's not that this makes her better at understanding what's going on, but at least being aware that things are not so straightforward, I think would help to understand uncertainty and to understand that it's important to, to keep working on this and to keep looking into what is going on. Thanks so much to Marzia Lucia for speaking to me for this final episode of season one of How We're Wired. But it's not over yet. 
Join us in two weeks' time for a bonus episode with a very special guest. I'm Eva Higginbotham, and this is How We're Wired. How We're Wired is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. It's produced by me, Eva Higginbotham. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode. <laughs>